What up, people? Welcome to the Mind Body Hoops podcast. This podcast is going to be about me learning with you guys, basically. I'm going to bring on some of the people that I think are at the top of their field in terms of what they do, and they're going to help us become better hoopers, but more importantly, they're going to make us better, well-rounded humans, man. Like performance is an on the court and off the court thing and i hope that's what you take away from this podcast is that it'll make you a better hooper it'll make you a better athlete it'll make you perform better but it'll also make you a happier person a healthier person whatever the case may be so whether it's improving our mind our body or the our ability to play hoops i hope you guys enjoy this podcast as much as i do cool time when we can plug in some headphones and learn from the best in the world and uh, I hope these podcasts bring you value in becoming a better athlete and becoming a better version of yourself. Thanks for tuning in. Again, this is Max from Mind Body Hoops, and I hope you enjoy. Today's episode is an awesome one, guys. I got to be joined by Alan Stein Jr. He just released a book called Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. He is a, now an author, but he's been a performance specialist, a performance coach, and now a public speaker. And he's worked with people um, of just a vast majority that are all high performers. People like Kevin Durant, Victor Oladipo. He touches on you know conversations he's had with people like Kobe and Steph. You know he's had conversations with top entrepreneurs like Mark Cuban, Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, I mean, this guy's just full of information from learning from the best. And it's perfectly aligns with what I'm trying to do here with Mind Body Hoops is kind of take these habits and these rituals and these practices from top performers and try to apply them to our, you know, our habits and our days and our lives and, and improving us as athletes, but more importantly, improving us as people. And Alan has just laid it out for us. This book I read cover to cover. It's really amazing. And I was really grateful to have Alan on the podcast. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about, you know, bridging the gap between sports performance and business performance. We talk about self-confidence. We talk about self-awareness. We talk about finding mentors. We talk about um, Alan's journey through all this. All He's been through a lot, whether in the sports world or in the business world. We talk about kind of him and how he would look back and, and what he would change. And it's super insightful information from a, a true, true professional who's worked with the best of the best. I'm really, really grateful that this podcast has allowed me to talk to someone like Alan. And uh, this conversation, man, if, if Alan puts it best, the end of this conversation, he says, if you can invest, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours into whatever it is and just extract one to two to three nuggets out of that. If you take one to two to three sentences out of this podcast episode, that change your life or, or put you on a path that creates ripple effects to change your life. It's a super beneficial investment of your time. So this conversation, I think there's a lot you can take away from it. I took a lot away from it. And, uh, you know, we just have a lot to learn from someone like Alan, who himself has been studying, again, the top performers in the world. So this was a really special podcast episode. We go about an hour. So um, I hope you enjoy this action-packed hour I had with author of Raise Your Game, Alan Stein Jr. And there we go. Okay, we are recording. Alan, I'm really excited to be talking to you today. First off, congrats on the book launch, Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. Um, I loved it. In preparing for this talk, I read the entire book cover to cover. Um, and when I read a book, I usually highlight a few phrases, maybe a couple paragraphs. But when I went over this book, when I finished it, I realized I had about 70% of this book covered in, in highlighter yellow. So it just goes to show how dense and how valuable this 
book can be for someone looking to perform at their best, myself included. So you did an amazing job with this book, and I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. And that is uh, about the best compliment an author can receive. So I'm, I'm so glad that you not only enjoyed it, but you've, you've found some things worthy of highlighting. And I, I really and truly appreciate that. And, and I'm excited for our conversation. We're going to have a good time. Absolutely. So I'd love to start with a kind of brief overview um, for myself and for my audience. I'd love to hear like a brief synopsis of your story. Um, how'd you get here, Alan? The brief synopsis would be that Basketball was my first identifiable passion. I, I vividly remember falling in love with the game at probably five or six years old. And, and I actually, at the time of this recording, I just turned 43 yesterday. So basically wow. basketball has been in my life for my entire life, almost four decades. And and I'm incredibly thankful for that. And, and my journey through basketball uh, has been an amazing one. And the game has been really, really good to me. And, and that's why I feel incredibly indebted to continue to serve the game, uh, but to also take the lessons that I learned from it and spread those, you know, outside of the four walls of the gym. Um, but, but kind of in summary, you know, I was a pretty good high school player. Uh, I was able to play it. It was Elon college at the time down in North Carolina. It's now Elon university. Um, and when I was in college, I started to develop an equal affinity for performance training and strength and conditioning and fitness and athleticism. Uh, so I knew that when I graduated, uh, and it clearly was not in the cards for me to be a professional player, that I wanted to take uh, my my old love of basketball and combine that with my new love of strength and conditioning and performance training, and and that was going to be my sweet spot. And and that's what I did for almost 20 years. I was a basketball performance coach, uh, mostly at the youth and high school level. Uh, but what I think makes my journey unique and interesting is that I've had a chance to see the best players in the world from two very distinct vantage points. Uh, one, I worked at two high schools here in the Washington, D.C. area that have produced a combined 15, 20 players in the NBA. Uh, and I got to meet all of those kids when they were 14, 15 years old. So I got to see uh, the, the traits that they had before they made it to the big time. So I got to see the before picture. Uh, and then that also led to work with Nike and Jordan Brand and USA Basketball. And I got to work events and observe firsthand and, and see the peek behind the curtain of what the best players in the world uh, were doing after they became great players. So that was kind of the after picture. So I've seen the before and the after uh, of what it takes to be an incredibly high performer in the game of basketball. And I now translate that so that folks can perform high, higher in any area of their life, whether it's business or, or anything else. But it's the same principles and strategies and mindsets and routines and, and disciplines that elite basketball players use. You just have to be able to apply those to what you're doing. And, and now most of my work comes in the form as a professional speaker. Uh, but as you mentioned, with the book out now, uh, I can officially call myself an author as well. And it's all just translating everything that the game's taught me into to usable and applicable and practical strategies that people can use to better their lives. I love that. And I can definitely resonate with that as a, I'm just only 24. And so being able to see you go from that love of basketball and learning to apply that in different ways in your life is super inspiring to me. And, uh, well, first off, happy birthday, Alan. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and, uh, what are some, you know, some, some ways that basketball parallels, parallels business and life in general? I know it's maybe an obvious question, but, um, where can we draw that line and what ways are kind of basketball, you know, kind of a big metaphor for life in general? I've always believed that 
that sport, not just basketball, but any sport can teach life lessons that, that other areas simply can't. And, and this has been reinforced wholeheartedly now that I'm a father. I, I have three kids. I have eight-year-old twin sons and a six-year-old daughter. Uh, and there's simply things that sports will be able to teach and reinforce with them that I, I can't do as their father. And, and both of my parents were elementary educators. They were both teachers for 30 years. And same thing there. There are things that, that, that sports can teach you that teachers simply can't teach you. Like you will learn lessons through playing basketball that you will not learn in math class. And, and that is in by no way uh, disparaging or diminishing the importance of teachers and obviously not diminishing the importance of parents. But that's how valuable sports are to teach things like being a great teammate and, and how to hold yourself accountable and to respect a game and respect your coaches and respect your teammates and respect the officials. Like there's so many different things that sports can reinforce. And, and the best part is, I mean, kids should play sports for one reason and one reason only because they enjoy them and they have a passion for them and they have fun playing them. So when you can, you know, do something that you enjoy and then one of the side benefits is it teaches you these life lessons that you really can't learn anywhere else. It's a, it's a pretty healthy cocktail of, of what we need for people to become the best versions of themselves. And, and I realize that a lot of people are not attracted to sport. I mean, you know, I had friends growing up that didn't play sports. They were into music or they were into the arts or theater or any of those things. Uh, and, and I'm sure that the same could be said for those areas, but I don't have much experience in those. So my entire life has been looked through of the lens of, of someone that's, that's been involved in sport. And I mean, it would almost be easier to come up with a list because it would be shorter of the things that sport doesn't teach you about life or the ways that sport and business are not the same Absolutely. because I, I'm still amazed uh, no matter how further ingrained I get in this, just at how much symmetry and alignment there is. And yes, the actual strategy, I mean, the X's and O's of what it takes to win a basketball game are not the same as the X's and O's of what it takes to run a business, but the principles are the same. The foundation is the same. You know, you, you take a great, basketball coach, uh, which is in essence, meaning a great leader. And I guarantee you, they would add tremendous value to any business in the world. Uh, conversely, you take someone that started and grown a business and is also a leader. They would be able to have things that would add value to any sports team. So it really is, I mean, it's very symmetrical and it's very circular that those two things go back and forth. Uh, and where I've kind of lived in the middle of all of this is I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. And even when I graduated college and became a basketball performance coach, I never worked for any team or college or like I was my own private business. I've started um, a couple of training businesses. So I've had to learn how to run a business as well as how to be a basketball performance coach. And no matter which side I was focused on, whatever traits I was developing, they always helped the other side. When I was working on things to be a more influential and impactful coach, those traits helped me run a more successful business. And mm. same thing when I was working on things to be better in business, those things made me a better coach. And, and both of those things, uh, and not being an entrepreneur and being a performance coach have absolutely helped me, uh, be, be a better father. And I love that. And I think it's super empowering for people like me and people, you know, maybe even transitioning out of the sport to hear is that everything that you've done your whole life, you know, can be consumed by the sport of basketball when you can get out of it. A lot of people do struggle, including myself, can struggle with, you know, what now? Where am I now? Who am I now? 
And for people like you to be out there to be reiterating this message that everything you're learning in this beautiful sport of basketball translates to so much more than this game of game of basketball is is empowering. Um, well, well, let's yeah, and and you're a hundred percent right. And let's look at this on a on a macro level. I mean, one of the things that always drew me to the game of basketball was I loved the individual component that I could work on improving my skills by myself. As long as I had a hoop and a ball, I could work on shooting and I could work on ball handling, which are two of the primary skills needed in basketball. Mm -hmm. And then whatever I could put in during the unseen hours on my own time, I would then take that uh, to a workout or to practice or to a game. And I would have to apply those skills for the betterment of my teammates to give us a collective chance of, of, of being able to win. So I love that I was trying to become the best player that I could be, but I was doing so in order to be the best teammate uh, that I could be for for everyone on my team and to give us the best chance to win. And and really the same is true in business and in life. And I know that sounds so cliche, but all of us should be working to become the best versions of ourselves possible, because when we become the best versions of ourselves possible, we become better mothers and fathers. We become better spouses. We become uh, better teammates at work. Uh, whether you're the CEO or you're the lowest person on the org chart, you still need to become the best version of yourself to best serve the team and to give the team the, the best chance to be successful. So uh, that's one of the ways that I've I've really found that it mirrors. And you know what I've always found interesting with the other sports, because I've played every sport under the sun, the other sports, it's really harder to work on your game by yourself. I mean, mm -hmm. soccer, uh, football, baseball. I mean, for the most part, you need someone else to throw with or to kick with or to tackle or to block or to, to chase or whatever. But basketball, not as much. And, and, and that's why I've, I've just found just, just tremendous alignment between those. So regardless of who you are, how old you are, what you're doing now, what you hope to do in the future – the very first step to you uh, making that improvement is improving yourself and becoming the best version that you can be. It really is. And that's something I'm trying to drill down into myself is like sometimes you need to be selfish in developing yourself to becoming the best version of you can be because almost by being that selfish, per not selfish, but you know, selfish in the fact that you take the time you need to, to work on your craft or work on your mindset or work on your body, you're becoming more fit for service to serve more people and help your team organization. And then, you know, the ripple effects are immeasurable, but the people you've worked with is amazing. You know, the list is huge, but you know, Kevin Durant, Victor Oladipo, you've, you've talked with guys like Kobe and Steph and Mark Cuban and um, entrepreneurs like Mark Cuban and Gary Vaynerchuk your book kind of lays it out that success leaves clues. And I love that notion. When did that notion that success leaves clues kind of start to click for you? And, and has it been something you've always applied or is it something that's came later in life? Uh, a friend and mentor of mine named Kevin Eastman, who was a, a longtime NBA assistant coach, um, worked for Doc Rivers for years with the Celtics. Uh, he was a college coach before that. Uh, he's also a fellow speaker and an author, and 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 his book is is similar in theory to mine, but is an absolute must read. It's 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 absolutely brilliant. Um, he was the one that taught me that that success leaves clues, and I don't know if he was the original author of that quote, but he was the one that told it to me, and. He told me that over a decade ago. And, you know, one of the things that I've I've always admired and respected about Coach Eastman um, is that that he is he's a lifelong learner, you know, and he has so many um, I call them Eastman isms. They're they're just tweetable moments. You know, he says, mm -hmm. be a learn it all, not a know it all. And and it's amazing that, 
you know, I spent so much time around him and he probably doesn't even know the degree that he has impacted my life uh, because these these nuggets that he bestowed upon me starting 10, 12 years ago, I mean, I, I just say them as if they're part of, of everyday life now. And, and yes, success absolutely leaves clues. Uh, and it's up to us to have our eyes and our ears open to, to see them and to hear them and to find them. And then most importantly, uh, to, to use them. I mean, it's one thing to have someone leave you clues, but it's another to actually take that and put it into action. And, you know, I mean, perfect example, Coach Eastman, someone that has left a lot of clues for me on how to be successful. And, and thankfully, most of them I've been open to and been able to do something with. And, you know, I'm hoping that I'm leaving some clues for some other people that, that are looking to, you know, either do something similar or make improvements in their life. And, uh, yeah, uh, totally. to be around someone like that and, and have that implanted in my mind, you know, 10, 12 years ago was, was very fortunate. And this book kind of does, speaking of mentors, this book does act as a mentor. And for people like me, you know, I've, I've found it difficult to find like quote unquote proper mentors. So books like these have always been kind of my supplement to make sure that I'm still learning from people ahead of me and people that, you know, are leaving clues. So while we're on the topic of mentor, how important to you has it been to have a mentor and for without, for people without that kind of clear choice as to who to go to, how can they get answers? How do people go about finding a mentor? It's vital. In fact, uh, before I completely answer that, I'll tell you that uh, about a year and a half ago, almost two years now, um, I was at a retreat and I had a chance to meet uh, Frank Shamrock, who's a, a UFC uh, and MMA legend. Him and his brother Ken were kind of the guys that put that sport on the map before mm. it became this multi-billion dollar behemoth. And once again, I don't know if Frank came up with this but he's the one that taught it to me, so he's who I give proper credit to. Uh, he calls it the plus equal minus, and he says you should have three people in your life at all times. Uh, one of them is a plus. That's who you'd consider a mentor. That's someone who's who's already walked the path that you want to walk down and has already accomplished things that you want to accomplish and, and can give you some guidance on the most effective and efficient way of getting where you want to go. Uh, then he said you need to have an equal. Uh, that's someone you would consider a peer. Uh, someone that has the same, you know, values and principles as you, uh, someone that has similar ambitions. You might not be going after the exact same thing, but, but you're in similar places in life. Um, doesn't necessarily mean you have to be the same age, but you're going after the same type of stuff. And, and you need to have that person in your life uh, so that you can kind of talk about your challenges and your struggles, but you can also celebrate your wins. And then lastly, he said you need to have a minus. And he doesn't say this in a, and again, in a diminishing way, but you need to have someone that you are going to mentor, someone that you're going to send the elevator back down to, uh, someone that, that is trying to do what you're currently doing or have done that you'll be able to give some guidance to. Uh, and this way you, you look at mentorship from, from three different angles, you know, mm. somebody that's ahead of you, somebody that's next to you and someone that's behind you. And, and, and that is, is really valuable. And I had never really thought of it, um, you know, with, with that type of, of formality until Frank explained that, but, but that's a tremendous way to, to live and, and to make sure you have those people in your life. And it's not like you have to sign them up for a lifetime contract. I mean, those three people will be changing all of the time. And, you know, when it, when it comes to having a mentor, that, that plus is the one that I think most people are most familiar with. And we always talk about the importance of a mentor and it's incredibly important. Uh, but I just wanted to bring some light to those other two, because having those other two uh, will really help you with your journey. And, and for me, as I look back, 
I don't think I ever really used the word mentor until these last few years of my life. Hmm. Um, you know, most of the time I was calling these people coaches or teachers and, and most of the people that have mentored me and have poured into me have been coaches and have been teachers. Um, but I mean, that, that list is infinite and there've been so many people that have poured into me and extended an olive branch and, and given me opportunities and taught me things, you know, Kevin Eastman being a perfect example. Uh, that's one of many reasons that I, I feel very, um, indebted and obligated in a good way to try to do the same for other people and, and, and try and be, uh, incredibly accessible and, and be able to offer, you know, wisdom and guidance to others because so many people have done that for me. So, um, I think the best way to approach it though, and this is just my personal opinion is you need to be very strategic in searching out the people that you believe would be able to help you. But the very first thing you need to ask yourself is how can you add value to them? What can you do to help them? Hmm. Um, because it's, you already know the value that they're going to give you. So you need to try to figure out to make that as reciprocal as possible, because I, I don't believe in keeping score. I don't believe in tally marks, uh, but I do know that the most fruitful uh, relationships in life are ones where where both parties are trying to serve the other and and both people are trying to help each other. So if you come at this with, you know, hey, Max, I want you to mentor me. It's kind of this. Well, hey, Max, I want to siphon off all of the knowledge and experience and expertise you have. I want you to pour into me. I want you to give to me. I want you to open doors for me. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what am I going to do for you? And, and I think if, if you can, can do your homework and reach out to someone and say, Hey, you know, I've really taken an interest in what you're doing. I'd love to learn more about it. Uh, here are a few ways I think I could add value to what you're doing. Please let me know if there's any more, I think you'll be much better off to have them receive that warmly and openly and say, yeah, I'd be happy to help you. And, you know, you don't always have to use the terminology of mentor, you know, more of it hey, you've had some amazing experiences that I'd love to learn more about. Is that something you'd be willing to share? And in the meantime, here are some things I can do to help you. So, um, and then there's none of this is done with any expectation. It's not done with any type of hidden agenda. It's not done with, hey, I just did four things for you. So now you owe me and you have to mentor me. No, you, you give freely and you pour into others because you want to and it's the right thing to do. And then if it, it ends up coming back and helping you, that's, that's a nice byproduct, but you can't do it with that intention uh, because more times than not, the person you want to mentor you is probably pretty busy. They probably have a full plate. They've got a lot of things cooking, which is why you want them to mentor you in the first place. So you need to be very, very respectful of that. And, um, I think you also don't need to look at it as, you have one mentor and it's, you're the apprentice. No, you, you can have multiple mentors. You know, mm. I, I have lots of mentors right now. And, and the last thing I'll say on that, cause I know this has been a mouthful is <laughs> at least for me, when I was, when I was coming up, I always pictured that mentors were older than me. Like it was kind of this, this wise gray haired old man who was teaching me all of the wisdom that he'd learned over his life. And that doesn't have to be the case. I mean, I have a handful of mentors now that are much younger than I am. But the reason they're mentors is because they have experience and expertise in an area that I don't. I mean, mm -hmm. when I left the basketball world two years ago to become a professional corporate speaker, I mean, shoot, half of the people that were mentoring me were much younger than I was. 
but they'd been speaking in the business world for much longer. So they had lots of things that they could share with me. So uh, don't get caught up in just thinking that your mentor has to be older than you and the person you're going to mentor has to be younger than you. That's not the case. I mean, I I was very thankful that when I was in basketball, you know, I'd like to believe I mentored a lot of coaches and a good portion of them were older than I was. And, Mm -hmm. and that, that was amazing that they had the humility and the openness to be cool with that, which they should. I mean, we all should, but not always the case. Absolutely. And I like that the the plus minus and equal. I think the minus is equal, uh, easy to kind of grasp for me. And that, that, sorry about that. My dog That's is okay. <laughs> the, the minus is kind of like easy to grasp for me, you know, like, like you said, sending that elevator back down, bringing people up with you and, and teaching others kind of helps you learn yourself. And then the plus is obviously invaluable in having a mentor. But that equal is something that I, I've noticed throughout these last couple of years of my life is just so important. And then you've said in the book that, you know, the others you put around you shape your reality. So what have you noticed from the kind of the top performers you've studied in that the type of equals that they allow around them and, and maybe how they are selective with their inner circle? Because I'm really obsessed with that, t- uh, that notion that, you know, you're the average of the five people around you. What can you say about that and the people you've kind of worked with and studied and things like that? Well, I believe Nick Saban from Alabama said it. And and once again, I know I sound like a broken record here. I don't know if it's his original quote or if if he's repurposed it, but something to the effect of, you know, high performers don't like mediocre people and mediocre people don't like high performers. Like it's oil and water. I mean, if, if, if you, if you are constantly working to be the best you can be, you probably don't want to surround yourself with people that are, that are content and complacent. And I know that content and complacent people get irritated when they're around people that are always trying to better themselves. And that's really how you have to look at your inner circle. You know, I mean, really there's, there's two different groups you can have. Um, one is your inner circle. And these are people that, you know, uh, first of all, that you trust, that, that you know that they care about you, they love you, uh, that they, they want to see you happy, they want to see you successful. Uh, you know, there's no, no hidden agenda. Um, they hold you accountable, they love you, they support you. You know, those are the types of people that you want in your inner circle. And, and these would be the people, you know, and, and I'm not saying this from a, a physical standpoint, this is more of a loyalty and commitment standpoint. Like these are the people that have your back. If something's going to go down, you know, you're in a dark alley somewhere, these people are going to have your back. And, and once again, I say that from a loyalty standpoint, it doesn't mean you need big, strong, tough guys in your inner circle. <laughs> but, but just from a mindset of, you know, if I lost everything today, if my apartment burnt down, identity theft liquidated all of my accounts, and I was left with nothing but the shirt on my back, would these people in my inner circle, would they help? Would they have my back? Would, would they give me, you know, whatever I need? And, and those are the people you want in your inner circle. Uh, and that's one group. And, and for some people, their inner circles are really tight, you know, two or three people. And they've been people they've known for 40 years. Other people might be a little bit more liberal. You know, they can build trust quicker and, and establish these connections, what have you. But then you also need a, a different group, um, which for lack of better words, I'll just call kind of your board of directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you're in sport or not, uh, or in business or not. But these are a diverse group of people that have different experiences. They have different expertise. Uh, they're diverse in age. You know, there's males and there's females. There's, there's different races. There's all sorts of different perspectives. And, and these are the people that can be sounding boards for you to bounce lots of ideas off of. And, and you'll get varying 
perspectives. And, you know, the more diverse this group can be, the better off it'll be. And, uh, the, you know, the more diverse their, their experiences and their expertise and what they bring to the table, it will just help you to see all of the different vantage points and perspectives there are. So I think it's good to have both groups and this doesn't have to be, you know, formal. You don't, you don't have to keep a, a running ledger of here's who's in my inner circle and here's who's on my board of directors. You just need to know that these are people you can count on for these things. Hmm. And uh, the reason I think you should have both is, you know, the people in your inner circle that you trust, this would probably be more for things that have to do with character and integrity and loyalty and, and kind of the, the big picture stuff. And then the board of director board of directors would be people that you could ask, um, more strategic type questions, you know, Hey, I'm thinking about starting this, you know, do you guys have any words of advice? And, and there'll be times where the two groups completely cross over, you know, you'll have someone that's in your inner circle, but they're also on your board of directors. Uh, but I think having both of these groups, uh, ensures that you'll keep things very well-rounded and you'll have as many different trusted perspectives as you can. What kind of people are in your board of directors? I'm sure you have a, a various groups of circles, whether it's basketball, writing, speaking, what, what does your board of directors kind of look like? Well, you just nailed it. I mean, at present speakers and authors uh, make up a portion of it. Entrepreneurs have always made up a portion of it. Um, but, but one thing that I was always very proud of that even when I was in the basketball space, I made sure that I had, um, solid relationships and connections with people that weren't just basketball coaches. They did other things. I've always taken a tremendous amount of pride in learning outside of my direct industry. Uh, so even, you know, even when I was in the basketball world and most of what I was doing was traveling around to speak at clinics, um, you know, I was trying to learn to become the best speaker that I could be. You know, I was learning from, from people that were in, in, in hip hop. I was learning from stand up comedians, you know, anyone that made their living on the spoken word, those people had things that could, that could help me become a more polished speaker. So, um, uh, at present, I mean, I have, I have people on my board of directors from, you know, a wide variety. I mean, some of them are still in basketball and even the ones in basketball range from players to trainers to coaches, to general managers, uh, to managers, to college assistant coach. I mean, even in the basketball space, it's very vast. And then same thing, you know, on, on the business side from, you know, our entrepreneurs in tech to executives for fortune 500 companies, to speakers, to authors. Uh, I want my, my go-to list of people that I can reach out to, uh, to be as, as versatile and as vast as possible. And it seems like you've started speaking kind of right from the gate, you know, whether it was directly or indirectly has, has being someone that kind of shares their message orally in front of a group of people always kind of been in the cards for you or how'd that kind of unfold for you? Cause that, that definitely piques my interest in the way you go about articulating things is definitely refined and, and super well articulated. So when did it start to, you know, come down to, I want to be a speaker. I want to share my message with people and large groups of people. How'd that come about for you? It, it did start through basketball and it started simply because I kept going back to what my number one mission or purpose was in basketball. And that was to elevate uh, basketball training primarily at the youth level. And when I started, I was pretty much just training high school age kids and middle school age kids in a gym one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two. And as much as I enjoyed that, especially the depth of those relationships, I realized that just training a handful of kids every day in the gym in my backyard is not going to do much 
to actually change the game. Mm. So I, I wanted to try to figure out ways that I could scale my message. And and remember, this is this is pre-social media. So yeah. there there weren't online magnifiers that that could get my my message out. Um, so then I started doing more stuff with teams and larger groups. And I was thinking, well, if I could work with an entire program instead of just training five or six kids in an afternoon, you know, now I could train a few dozen kids in an afternoon if I was training an entire team or a JV and a varsity team. Uh, so then it started to get bigger. And, and then I, I realized that the real way to scale at that time, pre-social media was to speak at clinics, that if someone was going to hold a basketball clinic and they were going to invite 300 coaches, if I could go speak, and those 300 coaches would listen to what I have to say, and then they would go back and share that with their players. Well, I could potentially reach, you know, a thousand kids if I spoke to 300 coaches, if they all went back. So then I was like, okay, speaking is going to be a, a tremendous platform for me teaching proper training. And that was when I really started getting on the speaking circuit uh, and speaking at basketball clinics all over the world at you know, it, 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 in a variety of different capacities. But that was when I really started seeing myself not just as a performance coach, but also as a speaker. And, and I saw quickly, uh, I mean, there were some Hall of Fame level basketball coaches that were speaking at these events, but they were not very good speakers. So uh, the, the message would get lost in translation. You've got someone who knows everything they know about basketball, but they can't really communicate that effectively in front of large groups. So there's a disconnect. And, you know, then, of course, you've got other people who are incredibly charismatic. They, you know, they could hold your attention doing just about anything, but they don't really have anything of value to share. So either way, if either of those two people were speaking at a clinic, you'd leave and your your page of notes would be blank. And that was when I realized that hmm. that being an effective speaker is part content and part delivery. You have to have something worth sharing that's going to add value to other people's lives but then you also have to share it in a way that's, that's, you know, engaging and entertaining, if you will, so that they'll remember it and they'll write it down. And, and that was when I, I started to shift from only trying to learn about basketball performance and athleticism and really started studying the craft of, of speaking and, you know, did that for, you know, almost a decade in the basketball space before I made this leap over to the corporate world. And, and still to this day, work on my speaking craft all of the time. I mean, I've had speaking coaches, I've had writing coaches, you know, hmm. I, I'm doing everything I can to improve both content and delivery. And over time, that will, that's the best investment I can make to having a, a long and sustainable and lucrative speaking career. And what was that transition like transitioning into, uh, you know, speaking, I can imagine it's, it's similar to learning another craft and, and, you know, taking it piece by piece and breaking your, your macro goal into smaller micro goals. But the one hidden variable with, you know, public speaking and for a lot of people, myself included, is that, that fear base, you know, like you're, you're not just starting off with just speaking. You're kind of almost being put into these high pressure situations as if you were playing like a game seven playoff game right off the bat with public speaking. So how was that transition for you? Whether it was the pressure or was it the skill itself? Kind of how'd you, how'd you blossom into that, into that craft? Well, as I look back, I was incredibly fortunate because when I started speaking in the basketball world 10, 12 years ago, almost everything I was doing was on court and I would have player demonstrators. And most of what I was doing was actually teaching exercises and drills for coaches to do with their players, mm. which means um, 
I, I was able to visually show what I was doing. So that perfect helps. example. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to teach there's, there's 200 coaches sitting in bleachers and I'm standing on a court with five high school players and I want to show them how to perform a, a lunge. And then I need to explain to them why the lunge is important, what muscles it works, how to, how to actually perform it, but why this is of, uh, you know, why this is something that basketball players need to do. So it wasn't just like I was standing on a stage with a microphone with nothing else. Mm. I was able to use my body. I was able to use demonstrators. You know, it, it, it was an easier transition. And for me, I've always enjoyed speaking in front of people. As long as I'm speaking about something that I'm passionate about and something that I know then I'm fine. I've never had that fear of getting up in front of people. You know, now if I had to get up and talk about something that I I'm not interested in or that I'm not passionate about, or I don't know anything about, then it would probably be a different story. But, uh, you know, from the jump, I've only had to speak in public when I wanted to about things that I knew and things that I was passionate about. So yeah. that made it easier. That's different than if, you know, you work at a company and your, your boss says, you know, Hey Max, I need you to start leading the team meetings every Monday and speaking to our 50 employees. And you're like, Oh, Whoa, wait, hang on. I'm, I'm not ready for this. I don't want to do this. What am I going to talk about? There's going to be some fear induced with that. So for me, I got to start off with that and, and then gradually realized that, you know, I didn't need to demonstrate things as a crutch and I didn't need, like I'm, I can use the spoken word to paint any picture that I want. And I also learned very quick that storytelling is one of the most powerful ways to teach a lesson or to convey a message that if you can tell a story, people are more likely to remember that than if you're just rattling off stats or if you're just explaining things. Um, so uh, once again, if you look at stand-up comedy or you look at hip hop, both are extreme versions of storytelling. I mean, that's what the best songs do and the best comedians do is, is they tell a story with spoken word and, and, and you can visualize it. You can uh, imagine it, you know, the, yeah. you can taste it and feel it. Um, and that's when I started making sure that I was working on that portion of my craft. So if I'm trying to teach, you know, why it's important to be accountable, well, do I have a story that can help teach that? And of course, you know, it, it helps to be able to use, bigger names and people that, you know, they're famous for lack of other words. And, and I use those not to name drop and not to try to beef up my resume. I only use them because they make the story much more sticky. I mean, I can go into a room of high school kids right now and talk to them about how important it is to master the basics, but they don't care about that for me. Or I can tell them about the first time I met Kobe Bryant and the lesson that he taught me and now they're listening. Now it becomes sticky. Now it becomes something they'll do. So if, if you're using names and stories for the betterment of the listener, then, then that's, that's, that's one of the best tools that you have. And, you know, lastly, after I had worked on that craft of speaking and storytelling um, in the basketball world, then it was a very easy leap over to the corporate world. All I had to do was really learn the audience and what, what the businesses need and what problems do they have that I can solve and, and how can I change my tone and my intensity and my volume and my pitch and my mannerisms and my pauses to better serve folks in suits and ties in the boardroom because it is different than when I'm talking to people in sneakers and shorts uh, on a basketball court. So uh, the jump over to the corporate world was, was rather seamless. Um, and, and I don't want to say easy because nothing is easy, but it was, it was much, much more in alignment with what I was doing. So it wasn't that, that hard of a change for me. And that initial alignment seems like it 
you were very self-aware and that you kind of knew what you were talking about. So it was a nice gradual exposure to what you wanted to be great at. And a common theme of this book is that self-awareness. You do say self-awareness is the single most you know, important attribute to finding success, which is, you know, surprising to some people. And another common theme of this book is the self-test that you provide us. So, you know, you, you encourage us to do these self-reflections, these self-examinations to kind of look on what we're doing and how we can apply what you've written in maybe that chapter. How big of a role have self self-test and self-examinations kind of played into this and in your life and in your growth? Because I know already, you know, going through this book and having all these self-tests, and doing them immediately, I've found so much value. Has that been something that's helped develop your self-awareness and maybe talking about, you know, why is self-awareness one of the most important things to our success? I think it's definitely important. A lot of people will say that it's important, but the most important thing to success, you know, that, that might be a shock to some people. So how it's def- go for it. It's definitely the house at which the whole, I mean, it's the foundation to which the whole house is built. And, mm. and you had referenced Gary V earlier and and if any of your listeners follow his stuff, I mean, he, he's been on a self-awareness, you know, uh, kick for a long time. And, and he's one of the people that have had an influence over me and in realizing just how important that is. And, you know, you go back and look at a basketball player. I mean, they have to know what it is that they do well and they have to know what it is that they don't. They have to know, you know, what strengths do they have that they should make even stronger and what applicable weaknesses do they need to tighten up? You know, I, I use the reference all the time in basketball. Um, it's not that big of a deal if a, if a player takes a bad shot because you can learn from that. It's the player that takes a bad shot that doesn't know that it was a bad shot. Those are the ones that are deadly because now they're just going to keep doing that over and over and they don't have any idea why that wasn't a bad, uh, that was a bad shot. And it's, it's the same thing in any area of our life. I mean, none of us are perfect. I mean, by definition as human beings, we're all fallible, but you have to acknowledge that you're going to have blind spots and there's going to be plenty of things that you don't know. And, and you have to know just as much about what you don't know, or at least acknowledge it as what you do know. And, you know, people that are, have low self-awareness, not only do they not see their blind spots, they don't even acknowledge that they have them. And that is, that is a major, major problem. And, and self-awareness, it's not something that you arrive at. It's not, you can't just wake up one morning and and announce to the world, Hey, I'm self-aware because the moment you do, you're not self-awareness is, is a work in progress. It's, it's always happening and you're going to go through times in life. and, And I certainly know I do where your awareness kind of goes up and down. It ebbs and flows. There's peaks and valleys. You know, there are some times where I'm incredibly aware of, of how I'm feeling, why I'm feeling that way, you know, how I'm interacting and reacting to others. And then there's some other times where, uh, there's a little bit of fog, there's a little bit of ambiguity. And that's when I know I've got to, I've got to really dive deeper and dig deeper to get that clarity back. But, but that's what self-awareness is. It's, it's the evaluate, it's your evaluation of how you see the world being in alignment with how the world sees you. And, and, you know, perfect example would be, you know, I mean, I know this one sounds really stupid and superficial, but you know, if I think I'm the most handsome guy in the bar, but the rest of the world, the rest of the people in the bar don't agree, especially all of the young ladies, then guess what? I'm not the most handsome person in the bar. Uh, that's, there's a disconnect between how I see myself and how the rest of the world sees me. And mm-hmm. uh, it's important. Uh, and this, this has nothing to do with trying to prove yourself or to get up. It just has to do with you being so in touch with yourself that you can look at yourself in the unbiased eye that the rest of the world sees you. And, and that's why 
you know, one of the ways to heighten self-awareness as counterintuitive as it may sound is to ask other people. And you're not going to ask strangers and you're not asking, you know, random people off the street. This is when you'll go back to your inner circle or many times if it's appropriate, your board of directors, the people that know you well, and you have to ask them, you know, uh, how they see you. Uh, another example would be listening. You know, if I think I'm a, a world-class active listener, but you ask the five people that know me the best and they all say, no, Alan is a horrible listener, then I'm probably not a good listener. Again, it doesn't matter what I think. It's probably not true. It's, it's inaccurate. So trying to improve your accuracy between self-evaluation and the way others see you is what self-awareness is. And, and, you know, as self-aware people will tell you, that will continually ebb and flow. I mean, generally speaking, you probably have a good handle on those things, um, but there'll be some other times that, that maybe you don't. And it, it needs to be something that all of us continue to work on all of the time. And, and what I've found through personal experience is the more self-aware I am, absolutely the more uh, influential and significant and successful I am, but equally important, the happier and more fulfilled I am. Hmm. You know, when, when I can really look in the mirror and, and say, yes, here are the things I do well, here are the things I don't do particularly well, and I can say them with a laugh, you know, here are my dreams and my hopes and my goals, but over here, these are my fears and my insecurities and my limiting beliefs. And those things are just as much a part of me as the good stuff. And, and what I find is most people, of course, they want to pay attention to the good stuff, the, the puppy dogs and the ice cream, but they don't want to pay attention to the bad stuff. So they suppress their, their negative emotions and feelings. They try to hide from their, their fears and, and run from their insecurities and mask all of that stuff. And it won't get you anywhere. That stuff's not going anywhere. That is a part of who you are. And ever since I've been able to admit and acknowledge and embrace my own fears and my own insecurities and my own limiting beliefs, um, it's, it's a really freeing and liberating feeling. And, and I still have fears and insecurities and, and limiting beliefs just like anyone else does. But now I acknowledge them. I know exactly what they are and I'm taking steps to overcome them to become the best version of myself. And I love that. And that's something I'm working on every day is, you know, becoming more self-aware so that I can enhance my strengths, but also address the weaknesses and, and be okay with them. And seeing this book, there's a lot of, a lot of the chapters say are, are character traits, things like confidence, things like, you know, being a good teammate. Is there something in this book that maybe you're still working to kind of perfect? Is there something in this book, one of the chapter heads that took you longer to develop than others? Is there something that stands out in that regards? all of them are still things that I'm working on and, and still things that I'm, I'm trying to refine. And as I mentioned before, none of them are, are arrival destinations. I mean, confidence is a perfect one. I mean, confidence is always fascinating to me because you can look at it from a macro level and say, you know, generally this per this is a confident person. But we all are more confident in some areas of our life and less confident in others. And, and, there's, and the reason for that is I believe that confidence only comes from demonstrated performance. Uh, you know, they, there is that saying, fake it till you make it. And there might be some validity to that. But for the most part, you're confident when you've proven to yourself that you can do it or you know that you've put in the work in the unseen hours to deserve to be successful. You know, it's why a guy like Stephen Curry craves the ball when the game is tied and there's two seconds left. One, 
because he knows he's hit that shot before. So he's demonstrated that performance Two, He knows he's taken that shot millions of times in an empty gym when no one else was watching that he deserves the right to make it now. And that's why he's confident. So it's not this, this false bravado of just acting, you know, puffing out your chest and acting like you're confident. Confidence only comes from those things, demonstrated performance. And those things will go up and down. I mean, you know, uh, as a performer, as a speaker, you know, I, I try not to let my confidence ebb and flow. I want to, I want to remain consistently confident, but again, I'm a human being who's fallible, which means after I give one of the best talks I've ever given, my confidence is an all time high. After I give a talk where maybe I'm second guessing myself, or maybe things didn't go as well as I would have liked. I'm working hard to make sure that that doesn't lower or erode my confidence, that I learn the lessons and I simply move on to the next play. Um, but certainly if I were to give three or four talks in a row that I don't think are as good as I was capable of, it would start to chip away at my confidence. So confidence is very real. Uh, but it's something that is going to, um, you know, uh, be higher and lower at different areas and higher and lower at different times. And you just have to accept that. And that is part of the self-awareness and part of being able to know that. And I'm glad you touched on confidence in particular. That's by far the question I get the most on people reaching out to me is how do I develop that confidence? How do I develop that confidence? And I love that you hit the fact that it's earned, it's earned, it's earned. Like there's no other way to go about it. If you don't think you can actually do something, it's going to be very hard to be confident in that. And then one of the nuggets that I love, I have to touch on is you and your conversation with Mark Cuban, one of the best entrepreneurs of all time. He says he still gets terrified before pitches. And, and, and that, is something that I just connect with. And I feel like people can in general is just that, you know, people like Mark Cuban, people like you who are doing, you know, these big things still get nervous, but they act despite it and they're able to fall back to their level of training. And then I love that you talked about Steph Curry and, and then in the book talking about the fact that he swishes, you know, maybe five in a row before he leaves. Is that right? And just, that was what he did back when I first met him. Yeah. I I would, I don't know if he still does that to this day, but yeah, yeah, that's a pretty amazing standard to hold yourself to. Holding yourself to that standard is incredible. Um, speaking of Steph Curry and all these other amazing people you've used, Mark Cuban, you know, these people you've talked to, these people that you've been around and being able to deserve. Is there one person, and this is a very tough uh, question to answer. I understand that, but is there one person in particular that kind of stands out as leaving, you know, uh, a lasting, the most lasting impact on you? Is, is that even a question you can answer? You, you know, I can. And, and the gentleman I'll name, you know, has been a great friend. He's been a mentor. Uh, he was also, you know, kind enough to write the forward to the book and that's Jay Billis of ESPN. Uh, I don't think I could think more highly of another human being than I think of Jay. Um, he is an amazing husband. He's an amazing father. Uh, he's the best uh, analyst and color commentary guy in college basketball. And I, I know I'm biased, you know, he, he's a partner at a law firm. He's incredibly intelligent intellectually, but he has a very high emotional IQ and understands how to deal with people. I mean, he's, yeah, he is absolutely remarkable. And there have been many other people in my life like Jay that have been able to pour into me and to help me and, and people that, you know, when I say put on a pedestal, uh, I say that as a means of respect. Like these are people that uh, I really, really have a strong appreciation and love for. Um, but yeah, if if I'm going to go with one, I'm I'm going to go with Jay. Jay has been so remarkable and so supportive of everything I've ever done, and 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 really believed in me and was saying kind things about me probably before I'd even you know earned the right for him to say those things. I mean, we hit it off pretty quick when we met 
back in 2007. And, uh, ever since then he's, he's just been amazing. And, and I, I can't thank him enough. And his, his forward in the book for those that haven't read it, is remarkable. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. I, I started crying when I read it wow. just because it was that powerful, um, to hear someone that you truly respect and almost idolize for them to say those kind things about you. Yeah. I won't lie. I cried when I read it. I love that. And that's just raw emotion. And one of the cool things about me doing this podcast is being able to hear things like that from people like you and hearing how you kind of started and maybe him giving that kind words to you before you even felt like you deserved it is awesome. One of the awesome parts for me is I get to be selfish on this podcast. I'm about to turn 24 next week. I would love to know, Alan, what if you could look back, assuming you would change nothing, assuming your life is perfectly on path, you know, everything happened for a reason. But if you were to look back and give advice to your 24 year old self, um, what would you say? I would say a couple things. Uh, the first thing I'll say is I know everyone tells you that it goes by quick, almost to the point that you're probably rolling your eyes when you hear it, but I'll just be another brick <laughs> on that pile. It does happen so quick. I told you I just turned 43 yesterday and I can remember 24 like it was yesterday. And in fact, there's days I wake up like I can't even believe I'm 43. I don't feel like I'm this old because it moves so quick. So that's even more reason to stay in the present moment and enjoy every step. Uh, more times than not, when folks are, are around your age at 24, they're so focused on the future and where they want to be and their goals and their ambitions. And, you know, when I'm 30, I'm going to be a millionaire and I'm going to have started this company or I'm going to be the head coach here. And all of those things are awesome dreams and goals to have. But don't skip the present. You're only going to be 24 for one year. That's it. And then you can't ever get it back. You'll learn some lessons, but you can't ever get that time back. Uh, so try to enjoy uh, every step. Uh, that's absolutely one piece of advice. Um, the others are things that, you know, it took me a lot longer to learn. I mean, many of these things I've really only learned over the last few years, which which means I didn't have them in my arsenal for, you know, 37, 38, 39 years but I'm thankful I do now. Um, one was I, I used to be a, a major scorekeeper. Um, I was always keeping score. Mm. And when I say keeping score, uh, first of all, let me say that this is not a behavior that you want. This is not a trait that you want. This never in my entire life ever served me positively in any relationship, but whether it was a per personal relationship or a business relationship, I was always keeping mental score of what I was bringing to the table in the relationship and what the other person was bringing to the table. And, and as you can probably hear from the way I'm framing it, then ultimately I would start to think that I was bringing more to the table than they were. And then resentment would build, disappointment would build some dysfunction or some friction or disconnection. And it would be, you know, Hey Max, you and I are business partners. I've been doing this, this, and this. And I noticed that you're not doing, you're not holding up the weight on your end. Now we've got a problem and same thing in personal relationships. And uh, I've learned to, I, when I say learned to let that go, I'm still not perfect at it, but I am a thousand times better than I was a couple years ago. And, and now I have the awareness that when I find myself starting to keep score and I find myself thinking to myself, like, you know what, Max owes me a favor because I did this for him two months ago. So he owes me on this. I catch myself with those thoughts and I just kind of laugh and, and give myself a proverbial slap in the face and then I just let it go uh, because relationships are not about keeping score. They're not about you owe me. 
They're not about, I'm going to do something nice for you because then you're going to have to do something nice for me down the line. And that was a very, it was a very selfish, it was a very arrogant, and it was a very narrow way for me to go through life hmm. um, looking, looking at it that way. And I'm, I'm thankful that I'm better now. And, and, and part of that also was um, I would also, I could hold a grudge with the best of them. Like if I felt like you wronged me and I put you on my blacklist, like you're there forever. And wow. that's also not a way to go through life. You know, everybody makes mistakes and everybody's on a different journey. And, you know, I mean, we're doing this podcast now. Uh, you and I could turn out to be really good friends or we may never speak again after this one podcast. We have no idea what, what our future holds for us. And that's OK. And regardless it doesn't serve any purpose to, to hold a grudge. There's nothing positive that could possibly come from that. Yeah. If I feel like you wronged me, then just let it go. I mean, it doesn't, they're, they're, and it's the same thing with complaining. Mm -hmm. You know, I like, I used to be like a lot of other people. I would complain about a lot of things. You know, when I was a player, I used to complain about the officials all the time. You know, here I was thinking, uh, that I was not only a basketball player, but I was also the best official on the court and couldn't believe that they could get calls wrong. And boy, did I waste so much uh, time and mental energy and emotional currency worrying about something outside of my control. And, mm. and now it's, I'm getting better at it. And with all of these things, they've only come about through self-awareness. Like I had to take a good long look in the mirror and say, Alan, you know what? you keep score in every relationship and every time you do it, it ends poorly. Why don't you stop doing that and quit being such a moron? And, <laughs> and same thing with the holding grudges, same thing with the complaining. I mean, think how many people, you know, here in the DC area, and, and I know you're kind of on the outskirts of LA where traffic is awful. Mm -hmm. How many people complain about traffic? It's like, well, how does that help you? How does it serve you? You can piss and moan and bellyache all you want. Cars aren't going to get out of your way. So all you're doing is ruining your own mood or ruining your own evening or your own morning. It doesn't serve you. And I'm at a point now where I don't keep score. I don't hold grudges. I try to let everything go. I try to learn a lesson from everything that happens in my life, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And I try to use everything that happens in this world in a way that can serve me and make me better. And I don't allow it to, to cripple me or move me back. And this is a constant work in progress. I have some really good days and then I have some other days where I probably could have done better. But even on those days, I give myself some grace and some compassion and I just move on to the next play. And I just say, you know what? Today was not the best day, but tomorrow will be better because I'm going to learn a lesson from this. And I, I don't beat myself up and I don't hold a grudge against myself. If I make a bonehead decision, which I've been apt to do many a times, I just, I just, I move on from it. I learn and I don't repeat it and I move on. And, and I know that was a, a big mouthful, but if you could even soak up 5% of what I just shared with you, oh. you'll be way better off than I was. At <laughs> I'm telling you, I appreciate that so much. The don't keep score. That took so much, you know, self-reflection, humility, just to even get to that point. So I want to appreciate you for having the courage just to even share that with me and publicly, but, and then the be present, it flies by. That's something I'm really trying to nail down. I'm at that peak point in life where it's easy for people my age, like you said, to just see the next marker that that 30 year old, you know, to strive, to strive, to strive, to achieve, to achieve, which is great and all to want goals and, and want to achieve them. But to hear from you, someone who's been through it, who's gotten to a point, you know, that's 
at a high level to be able to look back and say, slow down, be present, and flies by. Super invaluable. Um, I'm going to let you go. One more thing I want to ask you, in your own words, your ability to articulate it. This book has been awesome. It's really impacted me. Um, I would love to hear you kind of give your two cents to my audience. What is this book about? What's your goal? What's your impact? And who can it serve? I'd like to believe the book will serve anyone that wants to improve their performance in any area of their life, because I do believe that the, that the mindsets and rituals and routines and disciplines and strategies that are shared can help anyone get better at anything. However, I also recognize that my journey was spent in basketball and that most of my focus now was on business. So those two audiences uh, should not only benefit from it, but I would also hope that they would enjoy it and find it entertaining. Uh, if you don't like sports or you don't like business, I mean, you're just into music or arts, uh, then maybe the book's not for you. Um, even though the principles will work, it might not be uh, as enjoyable of a read, but that's still a pretty vast market of people that that I would hope would enjoy and benefit from it. Um, and really, it was it was written to be an entertaining and engaging way to share practical strategies and tips and self-tests to just become the best version of yourself. And then uh, assuming you are a part of a team and, and most people who think they're a lone wolf don't realize they are a part of a team and your team could be your family. Uh, it could be your neighborhood or your community. Uh, it could be your business uh, or whatever, uh, but you need to become the best version of yourself so that you can then add value to the team that you're with uh, and help them collectively be the best versions of themselves. And, and I've had so many books have a profound impact on my life that I, I, I viewed the world differently after I read these books and the thought that this book might be able to do a fraction of that for someone else is the reason that I wrote it. It's, it's kind of my way of giving back to people that read the, the way that all of these authors have poured into me. And and, and I hope that anyone that makes an investment of their time and their money to read it uh, gets something out of it. And, you know, uh, I've always looked at it as, you know, $17 on Amazon, take you a handful of hours to read it. For that investment, if you get one or two nuggets that, that make your life better, then that should be a pretty fair trade. You should feel really great about that. So not everyone's going to need to highlight 70% of it the way that you did. Uh, but if if they get one or two things from it that make their life better, you know, uh, speaking as a 43-year-old father of three, uh, if you ask me right now, would I give you $17 and five hours of my time uh, for something that I knew would make my life better? Yeah, I'd, I'd be lined up to do that in a heartbeat. That's an easy investment. And uh, for me, you know, it's easy to see the greats and say they're just bred different. They're smarter, they're faster, they're stronger. But this book really breaks it down and, and shows us that there's a gap that can be bridged. Um, and you laid out for us perfectly in this book. So I appreciate you for writing that book. And Alan, I appreciate you for hopping on the podcast. There's definitely a few nuggets in here that people can take away and, and improve their lives. So I appreciate you again for, for being on the podcast. No, absolutely. My pleasure, Max. I, I have a, a fun time talking about these things. And, and you asked some really insightful questions and, you know, uh, even the, the, what would I tell my 24 year old self? I mean, you, you brought out some answers that I hadn't shared with a lot of other people. So I, I appreciate you doing that. And for anyone listening, if you are interested in the book, you can just go to raise your game book.com. Uh, if you're interested in my speaking or anything else that I do in the world, uh, you can just go to allensteinjr.com. And, and I'm also at allensteinjr on Instagram and LinkedIn and all of the social handles. And I love meeting and engaging with people. So if you listen to this, if any part of it resonated, uh, please uh, shoot me a message on social and, and let's connect. I love it. I'll link it up in the podcast notes and uh thanks again alan my pleasure thank you 
that does it for that episode. Thanks again to Alan for jumping on the podcast. And thanks for you guys uh, for listening to the podcast. If you guys like this podcast, be sure to give me a rating on Apple iTunes app. That helps me, uh, you know, gain some credibility in the podcast world. If you guys like this podcast, if you guys have guests you want me to bring on, if you have any feedback, the feedback really is appreciated. Um, I do these for free. And, you know, your, your feedback is really what makes me keep going and makes me just super passionate about what I'm doing and makes me just feel good about it. So if you like what I'm doing with this podcast, reach out to me on Instagram. I'm most active on there. And uh, I respond to your DM. So chat with me. Let's talk and let me know what you think. Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, I'll see you guys next week.